And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here as always with the affable Dr. Bear Paul Lando, coming to you live <laughs> and direct from the great state of Jefferson, where freedom still reigns supreme. Fall is teasing us with beautiful weather, I must say, and big swell as um, we have, uh, I guess, uh, an interesting season coming in. Um, with uh, some big, big waves right now hitting uh, the Del Norte coast. I've double overhead today, Bear. Uh, I was uh, sharing with your son last night. He's very excited that those waves are coming down south. For me, it's a little big, <laughs> a little big for me, dude. Um, but I'm going to go down there and, and maybe play around later today. Um, but yeah, we are excited for our guest today. Philip Lindsay's in the house. Um, we're going to go deep into esoteric astrology and the root races and the hidden history of the world and all this fantastic stuff and apply it to today and how important it is to understand this stuff when we're looking at all the, you know, supposed craziness out there. Um, and uh, thanks to everybody who supports Alpha Vedic, A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C.com. Uh, you guys are awesome. We are on the final days of launching our new platform. Very, very exciting. We will have uh, be launching right out of the gates with that with the I Am The Living Law Workshop. We uh, will be putting together our mycelium uh, workshop from last year as well. That'll be the second uh, online workshop available. Of course, with that, we have forums, groups, the ability to befriend each other, message each other um, on the executive membership to directly message Bear, Deb, myself. It's about time, I know. We've been talking about it forever, but it's been a lot of work um, because it's our full functioning business site as well. So we had to integrate it all with the commerce. And uh, we are very, very excited for moving forward into 2024 with this phenomenal community as we go more into the private and uh, collaborate with each other off the technocratic control systems as we move into the parallel world and into this great Aquarian age. Very exciting. Decentralization is the future community and um, essentially knowing in deep in ourselves, Bear and Philip, that we are the masters of our, of our future, not um, the clerics and the um, Fauci's of the world trying to tell us what to do. So uh, that being said, uh, Bear, uh, anything you'd like to add before I do my introduction for Philip? No, let's uh, get into it. I've already delayed us enough today with my technical difficulties. Uh, I may be dropping off a little bit here and there until I figure this thing out, but I'll do the best I can. And I know you guys can uh, cover for me, uh, but we'll we'll get up and running here. Uh, Philip, I'm so uh, happy to... He's happy to have you here. <laughs> and boom, we lost him. Well, Phillips, Phil, we lost you there, Bear. Um, we'll uh we'll ride, we'll ride with the pauses there. Um okay. Well, Philip Lindsay has been a student and teacher of the ageless wisdom and esoteric astrology for over 30 years. As a prolific writer and documentary filmmaker, Philip's literary accomplishments include the Soul Cycles of the Seven Rays series, Destiny of the Races and Nations, Volumes 1 through 5, and The Initiations of Krishnamurti. His brilliant documentary, The Hidden History of Humanity, is an esoteric historical account of the root races from Lemurian Atlantis to present day into the future sixth root race. He has presented his work at many spiritual institutions and esoteric education groups around the world, touring extensively since 2001, 
as a perpetual traveler and global citizen. Currently, Philip's main method of disseminating esoteric astrology and the Age of Wisdom is through his monthly newsletters, received via email subscription and or accessed on his website. Most past newsletters are in all of his publications. He is also available for international visits and conducts webinars regularly, who, um, of which many of our, um, our own community members have attended. Really cool. Uh, Philip's website, Esoteric Astrologer, is a vast depository of esoteric knowledge with great relevance to current events and insightful resources to assist your personal journey of the soul. This very special episode is not to be missed. I, I do want to say a special thank you to our Alpha Vedic community, which has helped us reach 1 million downloads on Podbean. That was a, a really cool um, little uh, uh, ceremonial thing we had a couple of days ago uh, to hit that. Also, I do want to give Philip mad props, as I was saying before we hit record here. He was one of the few uh, esoteric teachers out there doing the cootie scare, not to you know, fall for the PSYOP, which goes to show he is the real deal. He is tapped in and he understands the realm and where we're going here. Bear Lando, take it away. Okay. And uh, Mike, I'll count on you to complete my sentences here if I drop off with the connection. Um, and Philip, thanks again so much for being with us. Uh, as I was saying, uh, a big fan of your work and, uh, you know, your body of work is immense and, and just uh, impeccable. And it's really a, a a treasure, you know, that everybody should uh, take note of. And and we'll just um, have to wait through these pauses. We're hoping that Bear can get his other uh, router turned on uh, here. So bear with us. Um, okay. So yeah. uh, I was just going to say, Philip, we'll leave all the connections to your uh, wonderful work, your books, your site, and everything so people can take advantage of that. Um, you know, there's there's so much. Holy moly. We may just throw it over to you, Philip, and then... Um, as Bear gets his uh, so, router fixed, Bear, let's throw it over to Philip and let him start. Bear, if you want to take five okay. seconds, and then I just came back. Uh, my apologies again. We'll get this fixed. Uh, very disconcerting on my end as well. Um, so, Philip, if we could maybe get a little of your background for people that aren't aware of uh, your history, how you came into all this, and what we really want to get into today is, of course, uh, the history from more of an esoteric astrology perspective. And, uh, you know, for the folks in our audience that are more concerned about a lot of incidentals that, you know, have their significance uh, as far as our history, um, we don't want to get lost in the uh, trees today with, uh, you know, debates. Um, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, we entertain a lot of those uh, theories in, in this podcast here. We want to really uh, emphasize that we're looking at the energetics of the consciousness of all the different root races that got us here. And at the same time, uh, you know, really highlight its relevance today. And rather than just chalking up today's ills as far as uh, a small group of elite uh Oh, I can. Uh, Bear, you you finished at small group of elite. 
So we want to uh, put everything within the context of the earth and the moon chains, which uh, you'll explain to us. So uh, take it away so you don't have to listen to me going in and out here. Well, thanks very much for your generous introductions, guys. Um, I've been studying esoteric astrology and the ages with them since about 1984. I grew up in Australia and Indonesia. Um, and when I started studying uh, the ageless wisdom, I realized I'd come home with that recognition. And that was specifically uh, the secret doctrine by, by H.P. Blavatsky and the Alice Bailey material. That's the foundation of, of all my work in esoteric astrology and in the hidden history of humanity. So, um, so that's been, so I, I ended up indexing for about 10 years, all the books, going through them, getting every single reference to, to the root races, to the cycles, to the astrology, so forth. And when I was ready to, to write the book in about 2002, I wrote the first version of it called The Hidden History of Humanity. But then in 2015, I decided to update the book and uh, uh, considerably with diagrams and, and photo and uh, uh, graphics and came out with this book called The Unveiling Genesis, Mysteries of the Root Races and Cycles. And um, this is a far better book to buy. Um, if you see the old Hidden History of Humanity on Amazon, for ridiculous prices, don't buy it. It's um, this one is a much better book and much more thoroughly updated. And it came out, it coincided with the video coming out in 2017. Um, we actually had uh, written a script and and uh, filmed all the interviews and and uh, done all the studio work back, uh, recording work back in 2012 in Los Angeles, but. Um, which is where my video editor lives. And um, then we um, finally got it produced another five years later because I ended up doing a lot of traveling and we uh, managed to get the video out at the same time as the Unveiling Genesis book. And it's called Unveiling Genesis because um, of the hint that Blavatsky gave in The Secret Doctrine about... Um, uh, the history of humanity being in the first six chapters of Genesis. So I basically took that to heart. And it's a whopping big book. It's a funny format too. It's in the old-fashioned kind of uh, format of two columns on each page. And you can see that or not. Maybe just hold it up a bit better. Lighting in here is a bit bright. But I did it that way because the the work of Blavatsky is so arcane, it's so complex, it's so intricate, especially the secret doctrine. She had various masters working through her to, to write all her books, in fact, Isis Unveiled and, and many other collected writings. So um, I wrote it in a special way to really tease out everything because some of the, the passages are so dense, you could, you could uh, you know, meditate on one for several hours or, or a day or two. So um, I wrote it, that's why the book is so big, because it really, if you get inspired by the, the Hidden History of Humanity video, then you can dive into this for much deeper detail. And uh, people have read it to their credit. <laughs> I congratulate them. It's not an easy read. But at the same time, there are essays in this book that um, are essential reading to, to get a, a grasp 
such as the third chapter, which I think I recommended to you guys. Um, let me just see what it's called again. Um, if any of you want to get a really good overview, the, this um, this uh, essay is on my website, uh, Reestablishing Correct Chronology in World History. And that will give you an idea of where I'm coming from as far as the longer term cycles that must be considered for our true history, <clears throat> which goes back millions of years. We still, even amongst um, alternative archaeologists, uh, have our human history only set back to about 7,000 years for conventional archaeology. But even the alternative archaeologists don't go back more than about 25,000 years. <clears throat> so, Levaski's uh, uh, teachings are basically based on the Vedas and the, the Hindu tradition, which give all the timelines and the, the various cycles, the yugas as they're called, um, over an incredibly long period of time, going back from, well, pre-Lemuria, in fact, going right back to the so-called moon chain, earth chain, and so forth, um, evolutions. Um, but essentially, for our intents and purposes today, it might be easier just to start with the the uh, stage of individualization back in Lemuria about 21.6 million years ago. And so, uh, Philip, um, just so you know, I am sharing yes. uh, that link to uh, the es uh, Esoteric Astrology uh, website. Uh, that is the Reestablishing Esoteric Chronology in World History. So everybody listening, I will make sure this is in the show notes as well. Uh, a very, uh, it'll be a very important read that will tie in everything to the discussion today. Very good. Yeah. So coming back to Bear's uh, question, um, I got started in astrology about 1984 as well. So I've been doing these two streams of study for about almost 40 years now. And uh, I work as a professional astrologer, but I use the works of esoteric astrology that were transmitted to Alice Bailey by the Tibetan master Dwarash Kul, who was one of the main masters who transmitted most of the teachings to uh, Helena P. Blavatsky, the secret doctrine. And so one these teachings of Bailey came, came after Blavatsky as a continuation of the same thread or the same, uh, what's the word, uh, dissemination of, of the, of the uh, ageless wisdom, which had been invoked by humanity through their, their cry for greater light and understanding. So um, esoteric astrology is in this book, Unveiling Genesis, uh, all the way through it, but it's not, it's not an astrology book per se. It just uh, it, it speaks to the various zodiacal cycles uh, over the, the, the years. For instance, in Lemuria, when humanity individualized and became conscious, uh, the, um, there were only eight signs of the zodiac that were activated at that time. Then later on, 10 signs, and, and we have 12 signs activated now. And so we're, we're looking at this immense period of time. And I do start off with a greater cosmos and work my way down in the book, um, looking at the fact that uh, we are in a solar system that is a, a corporate body uh, that, of planets that, that all have relationships to each other that have invisible evolutions behind their, their outer physical manifestations, that the, the solar system as a whole is an incarnation of a greater life that we call Sirius. 
the star Sirius is really the highest self of this solar system. Just as Venus, the planet Venus in this solar system, is regarded as the sister planet or the highest self of Earth. So, um, and there are various evolutions still going on in this solar system, which relate to the fact that some planets have reached their stage of, of um, liberation and become so-called sacred planets, and others haven't. And the Earth is one of those planets that's regarded as a non-sacred planet. And humanity's evolution here is about liberating themselves individually and collectively, of course, so that eventually the um, uh, the, the planetary logos, the one we call God, if you like, of this planet, uh, can take his initiations at, at that particular level, of course, and, and become a sacred planet ultimately. And so we're talking millions, billions of years of these evolutions. And so coming back to various questions about the, the globes and chains, um, I can, can't possibly cover it in five minutes, but I, I'm, I'll try just to give you a very broad overview because we can spend a whole day just on that subject. But essentially, uh, the globes and chains and scheme, schemes, each planet is a planetary scheme. But within it, behind the outer planet, in, we have an invisible evolution of globes and chains, of seven globes to each chain, and there are seven chains within a scheme. So we have 49 worlds within each planet that represent different incarnations that that planetary logos has to take going through all those globes and chains. And so we are in the so-called fourth globe of the fourth chain of the fourth scheme, the Earth scheme. This is where you are, like those sort of directions you see in the in the in the shopping mall. You know, you are here. That's where we are, basically, um, in terms of human evolution. But the previous chain to this one was called the Moon chain, and the Moon chain the Moon chain was was uh, basically a failure. Became a failure, which I describe in some detail in the book. Uh, through the premature merging of, of uh, positive and negative forces, to put it to put it broadly, and was closed down, if you like, by the by the solar logos himself, the being that we call the the solar logos, the the god of this solar system, uh, also called Sol for short, or, or the blue logos, and um, so. A lot of souls on the moon chain individual, who individualized in the moon chain, which includes the, the one we know now as the Buddha, had to wait uh, in what we call a pralaya state for untold millennia until they could reincarnate again. And they, they came in on the moon chain, excuse me, on the earth chain in the early days of Atlantis. But before that, the earth chain humanity incarnated in Lemuria. And so we have two of these two human evolutions on this planet, the earth changed souls and the moon changed souls. The moon changed souls were far more advanced intellectually um, and hence uh, they were in the majority the, the, the leaders of humanity for a long time. But a lot of the earth changed souls have caught up with the moon changed souls now intellectually speaking in this fifth root race which will become clearer later when I get into that. And so um, came the time of the middle period of Lemuria. And of course, with these root races, uh, we have seven root races that make up a globe period. 
we are in the fourth globe or the fourth chain of the fourth scheme, okay? And we are in the currently in the fifth root race. The first two root races were etheric in nature, as the human form was being gradually developed in gigantic sort of etheric forms, okay? And in fact, it was during the fourth round that this all happened. A lot of those forms were developed in a previous cycle called the third round. And these, these rounds are of like, um, uh, let me see, what was it? Uh, 676,000 years or, or two times that number. So they go for an extremely long time. And I also detail how this works in the book as well. So I don't want to overwhelm the, your, your audience with too much of this technical detail, but suffice to say, the, um, the human beings came into a more human form as we would recognize it today in the earliest sub-races of the third root race, Lemuria. And then an incredible thing happened. Um, human beings were at that time members of the animal kingdom and they roamed in tribes and they were gigantic in, in form. Um, but they didn't have they they had animal consciousness or, or group shared consciousness as such they didn't have individual consciousness and so within the globes and chains of the earth scheme there are other evolutions going on <coughs> excuse me all the time and in one and and basically a, a a chain or a globe is a reflection is a microcosm of the whole solar system so you can have a, a Venus globe, a, a Saturn globe, a Saturn chain and so forth within the Earth scheme evolution. And so from the so-called Venus globe within uh, a particular chain within the Earth scheme, the so-called um, Kamaras uh, came to Earth to help electrify humanity, essentially, to um, uh, within the unfolding planetary plan of the planetary logos. And, and so they seeded humanity with this consciousness through this, uh, this huge electrical force that they, that they um, created around the planet. These are highly evolved beings. And um, I don't know how long this, this electrification of the planet went, went on for, but it destroyed most of the animal kingdom at the time. That was the death of the dinosaurs, actually, um, around this 21 million year period, as opposed to the 60 million that, that conventional science uh, discusses. And so the, the electrical force also killed the, the uh, humans who were part of the animal kingdom at that time. But what it allowed to, uh, to happen was to reincarnate with individualized souls, with causal bodies, as we call them in occultism. And, and so that was the start of, of the evolution of human consciousness. And of course, there were beings who were guiding humanity at that time, who were assigned to, to guide humanity from the invisible and also the terrestrial realms the fledgling humanity of that time. And the individualization period lasted for 3 million years from the third sub-race to the fifth sub-race. 
And during that period, another amazing event happened. And that was the separation of the sexes because humanity had been hitherto hermaphrodite. And, um, and so by the time the fifth root race, excuse me, the fifth sub race of, the, of this third root race, the Lemurian uh, root race came around, the process of both individualization and of separation of the sexes was completed. And so in the latter sub races of Lemuria, um, humans were taught to, to farm, to fish, to build. Um, and they say, for instance, that some of the first buildings uh, from uh, rocks and lava and so forth were affected on the island of Madagascar, which wasn't an island back in those days. It was part of a continent. So, um, and also some of the first initiations were, uh, or candidates for initiation were, were primed. And this is, we're working up to from about 21 million years ago to about say 18 million years ago. And at that time, the planetary center that we call Shambhala was um, instituted, was, was, uh, was set up, if you like, um, in one of the first of three Shambhala locations. The first one was in the center of South America, what we call South America now. But that back then, it was a different landform altogether. Um, but it's still preserved today as part of the, the continent that we know as South America. And Shambhala, of course, is the center where the will of God is known. That is the uh, where Samak Kumara, who most of you have probably heard of, um, is the personality expression of our planetary logos and who directs energies through the planetary centers, uh, who has, who holds the planetary purpose and plan. And so we have three major centers on the planet as a discussed many times in my newsletters, Shambhala, hierarchy or the masters of wisdom and humanity. Um, we have other centers such as Darjeeling, London, New York, and so forth. That's a different thing. But um, so some of the first candidates uh, who uh, were ahead of the pack, if you like, who uh, had uh, moved more quickly than their fellow human beings uh, were presented as candidates for initiation. And so this is this third root race is regarded as the first root race esoterically, Atlantis the second root race, and our fifth root race now, the third root race. And if you keep in mind these three root races, it's a it's a very easy sort of trinity to, to follow in terms of the evolution of consciousness. So um, and what happened at the same time in these latter sub-races of Lemuria, uh, these giants were enormous. We're, we're talking 20 meters, according to Vlavasky, when she, she talks about the Bamian statues in Afghanistan as, as being the, uh, representing the heights of these different ra uh, root races. And so one of the first yogas that was taught was Hatha Yoga <clears throat> to help uh, integrate the the somewhat clumsy coordination between the etheric and physical bodies. And, um, but at that, there were many other things going on as well because humanity was, has just come from the animal kingdom and was, was basically polarized in the lower centers, the base chakra, the sacral center and so forth. The urge to merge was very, was very strong. So essentially what happened was that the, the so-called sin of the mindless emerged, which was the, 
mating of uh, humans with animals that created all sorts of monsters, apparently, which Plato talks about, actually, in, in some of his teachings. <clears throat> also, uh, Philip, uh, Edgar Casey as well. Mm. He talks about the automatons uh, during the uh, um, during the time of Atlantis, yeah. Well, and that silver <laughs> minus was repeated later on in Atlantis as well. But essentially, what these monsters um, uh, were the ancestors of the of our modern day apes. And he and Blavatsky talks about the orangutan and and other and gorillas and so forth. And I, I discussed this in one of the chapters in my book. So um, you were going to say something, Bear? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, you know, I. I hope our audience can appreciate um, just understanding a little bit more of the energetics, you know, behind uh, the human history at this point, um, because we tend to fall into a lot of um, theories and simplistic notions about, you know, just fallen angels and, and you know, the, you know, the giants and, and all that sort of thing. But if you understand it, it's actually a force of, uh, uh, these energetics that are modified, you know, as they come through our realm with the, uh, you know, seven rays, which I'd like to talk about a little bit and how all these forces interplay in order to oversee the evolution of mankind. Um, and just to back up one quick second, I don't want to ruin your flow, but uh, so people can understand better to the, the moon uh, chain, you know, the, the problem there in a nutshell, and you can explain it better is that, the uh, next uh, stage, uh, I think, during the Atlantean phase was uh, the materialistic um, attribute coming through, but then maybe a little bit prematurely for some reason, so that the uh, folks at that time got steeped in materialism at the expense of uh, yeah. developing other attributes. And that is what, in fact, uh, is a residual to this day of these so-called elites that are a minority in number, but that are uh, remnants of the same consciousness. And then also, if uh, if you could elaborate on that, if it needs any, and then also if we could just start interjecting, uh, you know, the qualities of the rays. We've done uh, a number of episodes just on the rays, uh, and those are greatly misunderstood too, because there's information circulating out there that somehow it has to do with uh, forces of the dark and 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 you know madame blavatsky has been greatly maligned and and That's a lot right. of these precursors right. to the modern yeah. time yeah. so i'd just like to if we could put that in perspective yeah. help people understand that this okay. isn't luciferian and the dark side of the force yeah the i've been writing about this today in my next book called geography and giants actually about the the way that blavatsky and bailey were both maligned through the whole kind of uh, Lucifer trust stuff and Lucifer, of course, being the being the uh, uh, the name of Venus. Uh, Lucifer being Lightbringer, but of course, that name was used to kind of um, really stick it to the to the conventional Christians of the fundamentalist Christians of the time. Uh, but it was used against them, and and so they changed the the, the name to Lucifer, but um, meaning light, of course. But coming back to your question, the the elites, uh, and I don't get into that too much right now, but the elites you're talking about today are what I call recalcitrant moon chainers. They are the ones with mm -hmm. highly developed intellect uh, who have um, have not taken the opportunities of evolution they should have. They've not developed enough compassion. Um, 
uh, and and of course they tap into the energy of ruthlessness. The the energies of the rays associated with with um, with Lemuria are three, seven, and five uh, along the mental line, particularly five. When when individualization was completed in the fifth subrace of of Lemuria, it represented the fifth ray, which is ruled by of knowledge and science, which is ruled by Venus. And Venus, in fact, was in a triangle with Mercury and the Earth when the human race was being seeded with consciousness. And of course, Sirius was in there too. Uh, so some quite exotic strains of energies. In fact, they say that our causal bodies are really made of Syrian substance. And so um, so we have all sorts of things that were going on. The, the, the misuse of the sexual force was the main problem on the moon chain. And there was in a treatise on cosmic fire by Alice Bailey, she spends a few pages on that, around about the page 420 mark, but I do quote her quite a bit. Um, and, and so when the moon chainers came in, it had waited several million years, of course, in this Earth scheme, to come in and incarnate in the first few sub-races of Atlantis, they brought all that moonshine karma with them and uh, the and repeated their, their mistakes as well, which led to the downfall of Atlantis. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, just to back, back up a bit to Lemuria, um, we have uh, in Shambhala, um, so the, the center where the will of God was known is, was anchored at that time. The first candidates for initiation um, were presented to the, to the initiator. Um, and in fact, initiation is, a, is a, um, a process that's been instigated on Earth to help us catch up with the, because of the, of the laggards from the moon chain. Uh, we, are, we should be at the stage where Venus is at, apparently, but because of the moon chain failure, uh, we have um, fallen behind. And so the, the science of initiation, which is a sub-science of esoteric astrology, has been introduced in this planet, and particularly so in the last century when these teachings have been given out, so that people are aware of the fact that they can, they can circumvent the, the endless cycles of lives and rep uh, repetitive mistakes by, by treading consciously the path of initiation which is essentially something that you instigate, you initiate yourself, and you become initiated over a series of lives through minor and major initiations, where you basically step up the, uh, the rungs of the ladder of consciousness until finally you, you reach liberation and can go on to other evolutions. So the first, second, and third initiations, which relate to the physical body, the astral body, and the mental body, correspond roughly to the three root races, Lemuria, Atlantis, and, and this Aryan, as it's called, root race. And there's another uh, misnomer, of course. People think Aryan, oh, Nazi. But uh, of course, the Nazis misappropriated that name. They, they were right into the, the works of Blavatsky and all the occult. They tried to, to find Shambhala. They, they sent off search parties before World War II looking for Shambhala. Uh, so they were really into it in a, in a big way, um, particularly, uh, what's his name? One of the guy who wore glasses. Um, I can't think of his name right now. It'll come to me later. But they had, they had black magical ritual uh, places, temples set up and, and all sorts of stuff. And so, um, so we, we're looking 
so basically, just after Shambhala was set up, um, so to speak, it also represented the first sub-race of the Atlantean root race coming in. And therefore, the, the, the setting of, of the scene, so to speak, for the moon change souls, which came in basically in the second and third sub-races of, of Atlantis. And so these two root races, Lemuria and Atlantis, um, lived in parallel for millions of years. Uh, Lemuria was finally destroyed about, um, about four million years ago, with the, uh, and it was destroyed by fire. Atlantis was destroyed by, by water, and this fifth root race will be destroyed by fire again, volcanic activity, earthquakes, and so forth, which is already in process, in fact, in the next few thousand years. So Lemuria, uh, many of the continents sunk, uh, were destroyed by volcanic activity and so forth. And that race, uh, there are still Lemurians around today, the, the Australian Aborigines, uh, the Vedas of Sri Lanka, uh, some of the African Bushmen are regarded as really, really ancient remnants of the seventh sub-race of Lemuria. So, um, these root races live and they fought each other. They, uh, of course, and inter interacted with each other in different continents around the world. And what I want to make clear here, too, is a lot of people talk about Atlantis if it, if it's, as if it's just one city or one, one place. But the Atlantean continents, just like the Lemurian continents, uh, uh, were spread all around the planet. And so my next book, the second uh, installment of the Hidden History work, which I finally got around to starting to write on this trip to Karnak in Brittany, where I am right now, um, is about tracing the, the transformation of the continents um, throughout history, because Blavatsky does give us quite a few hints about that. And there are maps that, that have been drawn in the Theosophical Society uh, that will help us to understand how uh, the, the landforms moved around, how they sunk, how they came back up again, uh, and where the particular human beings lived at those times. So in this fixed root race that we're going into now, in the next 25,000 years, uh, we're going to see, again, a lot of uh, volcanic activity where ancient lands will be will come from the, from the Earth's crust up into... into um, uh physical site again and they will carry a lot of the uh the ruins and remnants of past civilizations in them so um when the moon chain came in moon chain souls came in in early atlant in the early atlantean sub races they of course brought a huge intellectual cloud with them and and um which would have you know which which was passed on to the earth chain humanity too, of course. And, and also the, the, the guides of the race, the masters of wisdom, if you like, at that time, uh, gave humanity technologies uh, like, like a, a parent would give to a, a child, a toy. And, um, and so they're quite advanced technologies back then. And um, yet over millions of years period, uh, a lot of those gifts were, were abused and, and had to be taken away from them, like a child who plays with matches, for instance, or something like that. So, um, and the 
the moon chain karma kicked in even more. And so the, the major crimes that were uh, existent in Atlantis were the, the crimes of theft of other people's property um, uh, and, and sex magic. And this led to a point uh, of the deepest incarnation of the globe period that I was talking about before and of the root races period, if you're looking at like a cycle going down into matter and coming back up again, we're on the ascending path now. But the middle of Atlantis was that central point of the middle of the chain, the middle of the globe period, the middle of the seven root races, the deepest incarnation into matter, hence materialism was rife. <clears throat> and the masters of wisdom at the time basically had to say, uh, look, you know, we have to draw a line in the sand here. Humanity, make your choice. This is the way of materialism. This is the way of light. And so this led to the Great War in Atlantis, which was called the Mahabharata, um, which has been brought down to us in the Indian story of the Mahabharata. And there have probably been several ones since then. But that was the first one. And that was almost four million years ago. So, um, and it wasn't necessarily a triumph for the hierarchy either, because they had to withdraw. They were walking amongst humanity at that time. They were the leaders and kings of civilizations. They were recognized for who they were and so forth. Um, but they had to withdraw, we are told by the Tibetan master, for periods of, he uses the word, millions of years, another confirmation of the timelines here. And basically, in a couple of years' time, in 2025, less than two years' time, in fact, the masters will be making their, their once-in-a-century meeting uh, in the halls of Shambhala, so to speak, with the uh, one we call Santa Kamara to decide on their re-externalization for the first time since Atlantean times. This is why we're in so much conflict right now, because the forces of darkness uh, that were evident in this, this Atlantean war know what's know what's what the the deal is this is their last gasp and um that's why they they're fighting so ruthlessly to prevent the the plan the planetary plan from unfolding and as i say in my writings i believe that a date will be chosen for the hierarchy to to reappear in the next few decades it might be sooner it might be even later but no later than the end of this century so and this is sort of yeah go ahead i was just going to say and and uh up to this point uh, the conflict is playing out again mostly on the mental plane but we're in great danger at this moment of it going kinetic is that true yes it's uh i, I call this the third phase of the world wars when you look at world war one and world war two which the tibetan says were a recapitulation of the atlantean war four million years ago I look at this as the third and final phase. I don't believe it will go kinetic um, because uh, we've had assurances that the master, well, you know, it may go into a world war in a conventional sense, but not a nuclear sense because the masters will not allow it. Also the so-called space brothers, we believe uh, are on that as well. So um, the, the, uh, what we're we're in such a critical period it, it, it could it could go completely pear-shaped as they say in britain uh or not it's this the uh, and many subjective meditating groups are uh, you know working with this right now of course 
uh, trying to um, <clears throat> diffuse the situation on the subjective side. <clears throat> Excuse me. But anyway, we'll come back to that, come back to the present later, if you like. Uh, we should go back to Atlantis again. Um, okay. So we're talking, I'm talking in a few minutes about millions of years, so it's almost nonsensical in, in a way in, in covering it in that kind of speed. In fact, I still would like to write another book that goes through each sub-race of these root races and explore um, what life was like back then. The Tibetan gives us large slabs of it in some of his his uh, books through Alice Bailey, but there's a lot more besides in in, uh, in the secret document of Blavatsky and other theosophical writers, people like um, uh, a guy called Elliot. Uh, he's got a hyphenated name. I can't think of it right now. But um, anyway, so the Mahabharata story has the five sons of King Pandu uh, fighting the rest of the family. And this is, it comes down into one family that, that dominated India at that time, which of course was part of one of the Atlantean continents. Okay. But it was also the foundation of the fifth root race. The first sub race of the fifth root race a few million years later, as I come on to, to explain. So, and I, of course, Arjuna was, was the, the character who was frozen in, well, was paralyzed in indecision on the battlefield. And he had Krishna as his charioteer, which is a symbol of the highest self. And there's this wonderful conversation they have in a clip from um, Peter Brook's movie that I have in my documentary, The Hidden History of Humanity, where they're having this conversation and where Krishna is urging Arjuna to fight. And it's one of the most moving pieces of that uh, documentary called the Mahabharata. Well, it's actually a, a movie um, adapted from a, a stage play. It goes for five and a half hours. There's three and a half hour version, but I, I thoroughly recommend anyone to watch it over a period of a few nights. There's so much in it. They really caught the essence of what was going on back then. And um, and so those five sons of King Pandu were basically the future Manus or the, the archetypes of the future sub-races of the fifth root race. So immediately after that war, um, there was a huge flood. And this is what's talked about with Noah's Ark. Noah was in fact the, what's called the Vivasvata Manu of the fifth root race. And uh, well, here's the Vibus, he was Vibus Vata Manu has a few different forms, I think, but of the fifth root race. And the story of the Ark is both symbolic and, and uh, factual, I think. And maybe there were several arcs, some people theorized, of uh, rescuing the human remnants around the earth in spite of themselves, as one master grips, uh, due to the recalcitrant kind of. Um, uh, you know, the lack of changing their ways of some of the Atlanteans uh, who were basically found on mountaintops uh, because the world was completely flooded uh, and there were just, you know, mountaintops, uh, high altitude places where people were, were rescued from. And so the animals going into the ark two by two, uh, that may have happened, but I think it's more symbolic of the human remnants being gathered into the ark being rescued and uh, uh, and this story is not just in the Christian Bible it's in South America it's in other cultures all around the world under different names 
as I point out in my book. And we're talking like about three and a half million years ago that this this occurred. And this is the first of four Atlantean floods. So it's really uh, easy to get them mixed up. And I do lay this out in certain timelines in my book. Because the whole thing about this book is to is to uh, is to bring in the, the correct chronology of world history, which is being suppressed in so many ways, um, and even today. And so um, basically, I think my theory is he took them back to the Himalayas or somewhere in the Himalayas, and essentially brought all those remnants together, which included some Lemurian remnants as well, with Atlantean remnants and created a new race. And then one million years ago, that new race, the so-called Aryan race, which of course means noble in, in, in Sanskrit, uh, was uh, introduced into Northern India. And there was the first sub-race of the fifth root race um, that uh, was in its uh, such a Yuga cycle, the golden age with all the, you know, the highest qualities of what that race and religion meant and the, the purest type of, um, of human beings. And so, of course, the, every sub-race has seven branch races. So at that time, there were other uh, branch races like the Phoenicians, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, all these guys that are quite popular today in, 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 uh, in internet uh, forums. Um, and and so when each root race starts, uh, excuse me, when each sub-race starts, or even with the root races as well, as I show in some of my tabulations in my book, the seed for the for a root race comes is, is emerges from a the, the the same numerical sub-race before. And I show how these overlapping cycles work. They don't work back to back linearly. In spirally, uh, you know, they work in a spiralic fashion uh, as time is, and and so do the root races. They all overlap each other, and so we are in the fifth root race now. But we have Atlantean overlaps on one side, and we have six root race overlap on the other side, as I'll explain in a minute. Um, so uh, that first sub race of of um, the fifth root race the hindu sub race is the foundation of all the western sub races that came after the second sub race was the um the uh the egyptians and the um the cambodians and the mayans who were like a bridge between atlantis and the fifth root race all of whom have absolutely disappeared now completely disappeared. The, the, the Hindu root race, of course, has, has not disappeared, but, but the, the second sub-race has disappeared entirely. Great mystery there. Um, the third sub-race, so they came forth in roughly 210,000 increments. And the third sub-race was the um, Semitic Arab about uh, 600,000 years ago. The fourth sub-race, the Celtic Latin, about 400,000 years ago. And the fifth sub-race, the so-called Teutonic, Scandinavian, Anglo-Saxon, came forth about 100,000 years ago. And then we have our, our branch races within that, of course. 
and the fifth branch race of this fifth sub-race, which gives the 5.5.5 that I discussed in my writings, um, <clears throat> is the Anglo-Saxon branch race. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and so we've reached the, the peak of the development of the of the quintessential nature of five, five being the number of manas or mind. Not all of us, the, the Tibetan tells us that 80% of the humanity are still uh, polarized in Atlantean consciousness, which is more to do with the emotions and the feelings. Um, but a small percentage of humanity who have reached that level hold it for the rest of the race, so to speak. Just as the masters of wisdom who are only 63 of them on this planet, hold it for the whole planet, such as their power and their, their, their development. So within this fifth root race, this 5.5.5, we're, we're actually at 5.5.6 now. And six is the sixth branch race, which the USA is, was the pioneer of since about the 1600s. And that will be the seed of the sixth sub-race of the fifth root race, which will be the seed of the sixth root race, which is uh, destined to unfold in 25,000 years time in the center of South America, back where full circle, where Shambhala was in the first place, back in the center of Brazil, but not the Brazil we know today because Brazil will be much bigger in the future, probably incorporating Bolivia and Peru which of course are mm. sites of the ancient mysteries and artifacts and pyramids and, and Lake Titicaca and all those mysteries. Um, and I, so yeah, I'll take I, a pause. I think you <laughs> explain also, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, forgive me, uh, I, I think you explain also that the um, sixth root race would uh, see a great intermingling uh, which is what we see in the U.S. right now, as far as many races coming together in a melting pot, so to speak. Um, so, you, you know, of course, we have all sorts of political shenanigans going on with open borders and and that sort of thing, uh, which is creating an intermingling. But is this unknowingly to the so-called elites sort of playing into this new cycle where that was going to be happening anyway? Yes, it seems like a deliberate um, undermining of the USA, in fact, I think. Um, but mm -hmm. the, the, the mixing of races um, has reached a point like it never has in the history of the planet. We have all of Europe, all of Australia. They have In Australia, there's about 250 ethnic minorities. Um, and the same in Europe, everywhere, not just the USA. But the USA, as I uh, discussed in some of the essays that you can find on my website, uh, it's a three-part essay that relates to this um, movement towards the sixth root race. Um, uh, USA, you know, the, what we have with, with the 5.5.5 and the Anglo-Saxon thing is, is Britain, who was the, the mother of, of the USA, so to speak. Um, and so USA is a bridge between the fifth root race and the sixth root race, which will take root in Brazil in the future. Which do, and where there will, will be, of course, a, an amalgamation, the synthesis of, of all, of many different strains of uh, ethnic strains, which there is already, of course, many Europeans, Germans and Italians in South America, for instance, Japanese. Um, 
and so that that's already underway really and, and will become even more so in, in the next 25,000 years and that will be the start of the development of a higher consciousness which we call the intuition we've developed mind so far to a, uh, in this fifth root race that the intuitive consciousness or buddhi as we call it from the, from the higher planes will be something that will be developed um, over a period of quite a few million years plus also um, this is another astounding fact the, uh, talking about coming full circle back to Shambhala there's also a coming full circle sexually speaking in terms of humans uh, developing hermaphrodite bodies again An extraordinary thing to think about um, well, especially again, with the whole big, trans movement and everything going on being pushed yeah. by that side yeah a lot of that is being pushed by the materialistic forces, of course, to undermine, to separate, to weaken, all those kind of things, as we're all aware. Uh, it's not part of the, but they seize part of the plan in the future and they package it and present it in a kind of uh, a nice way in the present to mislead and delude a lot of well, people. Well, Steiner would call that in the aramonic deception. That's Aramonic, right. That's right. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He was a, he, uh, interacted with Blavatsky and they fell out and he went his way and she went hers. I've read all the Steiner books. It was some of the first books that I ever read back in the eighties. And, um, but yeah. I find them a little bit wanting in terms of detail with the races and the cycles. So as I do a few of the other theosophical authors as well, but, uh, coming yeah, back I, to, um, I was going to say, coming back I, to I was just going to say, I, I would, uh, I would agree with those limitations with Steiner, although Steiner was uh, uh, instrumental in really helping, you know, like, like myself, I got into a lot of these studies initially, you know, uh, to engage in my vocation a little bit more uh, in depth. And uh, Steiner was great in understanding the energetics and how that created the uh, predictable yeah. pattern of metamorphosis of one species to another or developmental stages within one species. Um, just one thing I wanted to um, back up slightly on, we we're talking about when the animal kingdom uh, earlier on uh, transitioned into the human kingdom. And I think, um, oh shoot, was the animal kingdom uh, governed by the rays of uh, the third and the fourth rays? Uh, and then uh, hum humanity was the fourth and the fifth rays. But, but the point is, is uh, that identified a, a period of identification i think we call it uh which means now you're actually that becomes your you know identification and now we've gone through the larger cycles of you know kind of gradual organic evolution in prior times and then we came into uh, like the period of initiation would that be more the atlantean times where the hierarchy is actually able to tutor us in a more uh specific way and then the final will be another identification period does that come in in the sixth uh root race where now you know we go beyond uh to the next level just like when we transition from animal to human i don't know if i, I look at if, if i go back to this lemurian period again and work my way forward yeah i hope to please, cover all those please. points you just mentioned so awesome. what i was going to the reason I want to go back to the, uh, the Lemurian period is because these lumbering great monsters, these giants, only had one eye, and it was on top of the head, which could see all things at once, both psychically and physically. 
it's hard for us to imagine what the face would look like without two eyes. But apparently, according to Blavatsky, over the three million year period from after individualization into the early subraces of Atlantis, the gradually two-eyed sight grew out of the brain and humans had two eyes as we have today. And at one stage in this transition period, they had three eyes. They still had the the um, one eye at the top of the head, the, towards the back of the head, apparently. And that covers the area where those four uh, uh, sutures, are they called, in the cranium are. And, yeah, it's um, the uh, which, anterior fontanelle, which actually fontanelle, takes right. uh, a little bit into one's lifetime to solidify, right? Yeah. But is very so, soft and pliable in a newborn infant. That's right. And, 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 and you can see it pulsing in a newborn infant. And what happened was that exactly. the, that eye receded back into the brain and became the pineal gland. The pineal gland being the, the, the major uh, endocrine gland for the crown chakra, which is here, of course. And so we, in a baby's um, gestation and, and birth, we see repeating all the stages of previous evolution of humanity right back millions of years. And, and of course, the, the pulsing that can be viewed in the newborn baby uh, be, before the, uh, the fontanelle uh, uh, seals over. Is that how you call it? Uh, yeah. So um, extraordinary mm -hmm. stuff. So often we see the third eye as being in the middle of the forehead. I, I have a theory. I don't believe that is true. That's how it's commonly depicted. Um, but we do have a third eye, an inner third eye, of course, uh, behind the Ajna center. Now, the Ajna chakra is not the same as the third eye, but it's in the same region. Uh, and, and so the third eye works with two chakras behind the two eyes and the, um, uh, what's the other gland besides the pineal? The uh, pituitary, pituitary. Sorry, yeah, it works as a, in a triangle apparently of energies. Now, a lot of this is brought out in Alan Stanley's book and his book healing. So, um, well, the, so this, this also uh, uh, sorry, uh, if you could consider the pituitary as the uh, you know front portion of a dipole and the, the pineal being the opposite pole behind it, and then. Those two are connected by the third ventricle, which is a, a fluid way that conducts electricity. Mm -hmm. So it creates a real electrical mm -hmm. spark between those. And anybody, you know, that's done any kind of meditative practices will experience, you know, just a very pronounced uh, buildup of pressure in that third eye area uh, just by, you know, imagining and, and focusing there. So, um, yeah. It's a, it's a real deal and still active. We just have to take it upon ourselves, I think, to do things to reactivate it. It's an excellent point, Bear. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the science of layer yoga was a big science in Atlantis, but it disappeared because it was abused, I think, as well. And, but it will come back in the Aquarian age, we're told. It's going to be revived and and um, brought through and uh, will tie in with the new esoteric healing that will emerge during the Aquarian age as well. So we have this transition period of a few million years, <coughs> excuse me, uh, with the, the, the two-eyed sight growing out of the brain, the re receding of the 
um, the one eye, but at one stage during that period, there were, uh, humans had three eyes. Uh, there may have been an eye, a physical eye here in the forehead, but I don't think so. That, that's my current theory anyway. So, um, uh, and that, that period corresponded to the wonderful marvels of technology in the early sub-races of Atlantis. Great cities, these, these marvelous cities and buildings that would just put to shame even the best remnants of the of the uh, Greek civilization that we see the remnants of today, according to DK, they're, they're just almost unimaginable. Um, and of course, they had uh, aircraft at that, at that time as well, the Vimana uh, aircraft, which of course we call UFOs today. That technology has been around for a long time. And in fact, during the Mahabharata, part of that war was fought with those flying vehicles. And of course, there is one Hindu book uh, uh, the Vamana Shastra or something like that uh, which describes these flying vehicles. This technology has been around for a long time it, within the planet. It doesn't just come from uh, some outside source. Not to mention all the <laughs> artifacts and artwork going back from Egypt and that yes. show these discs. Does it doesn't mean they have to be yeah. grey aliens. <laughs> it's literally uh, yeah. us it's the right ancient races with the technology that had this that was in many ways from what i understand thought controlled too uh especially yeah. during lemurian times and and what's happening now is that all those technology technologies that humans abused and had taken away from them back in atlantean times they are rediscovering now but off their own intellectual bat they're they're all coming back now all those those technologies that have been rediscovered uh, by humanity itself through its own through its own uh, expanded consciousness and this will continue into the Aquarian age and so of course um, again uh, what we're seeing today uh, is the shadow of that is the abuse of science uh, that we've seen particularly in the last three years um, but um, so just coming back just to finish off with Atlantis for a moment because it's a very brief Kind of overview of Atlantis. Um, the second Atlantean flood came about 850,000 years ago. And that's the time when the priests and initiates from, from Egypt, which spread far further south than where it does today, of course, back then, back to the confluence of the White and the Blue Nile rivers, um, they set out on a trip that took them through to uh, northwest corner of Morocco and across the Straits of Gibraltar, which was dry land back then, this is 850,000 years ago, just before the second flood, um, and then worked their way up into France uh, through Spain, what we call Spain now anyway, uh, and France into Brittany, where, which is ground zero for the megaliths in Europe. There's an extraordinary amount of stones. So originally in Karnak, where I am now, uh, there are 11,000 menhirs erected. Uh, there's only about 3,000 of them left now, but they're erected for certain purposes by these priests and initiates, and most of them weigh on an average of 40 or 50 tons each. Uh, some of them, the great 67-foot uh, uh, menhir, uh, just a ways from here, was 330 tons, and they're all granite. 
which of course, as we know, is a crystalline magnetic substance that, um, that is used in the pyramids in Egypt and uh, which can be um, utilized, their magnetic energies can be utilized with the power of sound to move them effortlessly into place. Of course, current archaeological theory uh, says that the Neolithic people who are pretty primitive sort of farmers and so forth use ropes and, and, and runners to, to haul 32-ton um, slabs of granite um, using about 250 men to do that, pulling ropes. It's a ridiculous theory, of course, as are many of the theories about building the pyramids. No, they were, they were actually these priest initiates from Egypt, the, first, the second sub-race, of course, of, uh, of the fifth root race, uh, knew the, uh, the rules of magic, uh, the laws of magic, and applied them and created these extraordinary stones in Brittany, uh, dolmens, menhirs. Uh, as I said, there are 11,000 stones in Karnak arranged in these different rows. And many people like uh, Howard Prohurst and, and, uh, and others have done some excellent work in investigating uh, these stones. But uh, I think one of the main reasons that they uh, put them there was a relation, an astronomical relationship with the cosmos. And that's one thing I'm really probing into now, maybe to do with the constellation of Draco. But they, these initiates kept on moving northwards in the same, and Blavatsky tells us that these same initiates built Stonehenge. And in fact, they walked across more dry land in the English Channel. This is before the flood again. So there was, uh, you know, Brittany, Britain was joined as one, as one, uh, uh, chunk of land at one stage and they also ventured up into scandinavia to denmark scotland island uh, and so forth building their men here's and dolmens so essentially the timeline on those dolmens is extraordinary it's, you're talking about eight hundred thousand plus years as opposed to four or five thousand or seven thousand years in modern modern chronology which is is uh it's even a, a big leap for all of us, I think, because we've all been conditioned in our, in our schooling, in our culture, to, to accept the fact that the Egyptian pyramids uh, are about the same age and so forth. Where Blavatsky tells us that the Great Pyramid uh, was built about 70, 76, 78,000 years ago. But if you go out to Saqqara, into other places in Egypt, you look at it you, when I went there in 2006, and I must go again very soon. Um, you go, whoa, this is just so old and ancient, probably at least 400,000, 500,000 years old out there. And because the their techniques of building were so um, precise and so so um, immaculate, those buildings have have stayed. Uh, have survived for for many hundreds of thousands of years. Um, no modern building methods can equal them. And so one of the things about that is... Um, um, well, also, I, I, one thing I'll say go, about go when people are challenged by these large historical time differences from the mm -hmm. traditional modern archaeologists and anthropological references, it does lend to... Um, more uh, more of a reason than or uh, you know 
how they were able to create these things because we're literally talking about completely different types of intelligences and uh, types of human beings here that had other abilities, including psychic and conscious abilities where they could levitate and do things. And we're talking about such a long time ago that the reference that we have, even when we're talking about, like you were saying, you know, some saying 15,000 years, there wouldn't be enough temporal uh, advancement uh, in that framework to have uh, the human civilization, to have the technological advancements to do the pyramids. That's why I think people yeah. are so challenged, even the alternative uh, folks who are saying they cast the stones, you know, in a certain way, or did mm -hmm. use sound. I, I think it opens up to the to a lot more sensibility when we look at these vast time um, differences yeah. versus even just you know fifteen twenty thousand years if that makes sense. They, they they did use sound to create a vacuum apparently. The Tibetan talks about this in in one of his books uh, to lift them effortlessly and and transport them over long long uh, distances in some cases. Uh, but uh, what I wanted to come back to. Um, something a couple of things i've missed that are, that are really important um oh i think what it is now it will come back to me in a minute um well i will say reading a dweller of two planets which is a occult classic i was rereading that yeah. again uh and supposedly that's, that's a different like, tibetan yeah that's phylos the tibetan and yeah. um that was supposedly written by an 18 year old in like 1888 or something. Yeah. And it's so advanced in terms of its narrative and how it ties everything in together. It's would be pretty remarkable for that 18 year old to actually invent that himself. That's yeah. where I come that from. That was a channel book. That was a channel book for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And they do go into um, it's cool because I, I highly recommend reading that because it just, it's fun and it gives you a cool insight into what life would be like back then um, with those yeah. types of technologies and how the civilization worked and sort of how the mm -hmm. uh, the kings worked and and with through divine rule and it mm -hmm. was yeah and and when they go when the Atlantean um, civilization sort of had because it's at that time where we're talking about right with the the six root rates coming in mm -hmm. the Aryans and you have the the essentially the what the indian people are now the the ancient vedics and how they had this power of thought and how they could quickly wipe out other warlike uh um tribes that might have been using a more kinetic sort of technology but they still had the remnants of the ancient sort of thought-based mental psychic powers uh mm -hmm. anyways it's it's a really cool read i i highly recommend it and and um it is that's an amazing book glad you brought that up mike and also uh for those that aren't familiar with alice bailey who uh worked with uh the tibetan that we've been alluding to here um uh her books i got involved with these oh back in the early 70s uh, we just loosely call them the blue books uh this is the seven ray there are many volumes i don't know offhand how many volumes but uh one time i read them all <laughs> And uh, so these are the books that somebody, you know, they're not easy reads and there's a lot of deliberate, um, what would we say, uh, blocks, Veiling. you know, just to, yeah, veilings and things, but uh, still very valuable if anybody has the uh, wherewithal to go into those. And then there's also people that took off on Alice Bailey's uh, work. This, I was involved with them pretty intensely with... Uh, 
University uh, Robbins of the and uh, Michael Robbins, Ray, yeah. Uh, University. Yeah, yes. I yeah I used to do uh, seven ray analysis on patients and things to help me understand you know what they're dealing Brilliant. with more. But uh, anyway, um, did you had something you were going to get into? I've, re there, I've remembered what I was going to uh, say Phil. now. I, re I, remember, I just want to return to Lemuria again. I always, always return to Lemuria. Uh, uh, it's funny, I was born in, in an ancient remnant of Lemuria in Brunei in Indonesia. And I grew up in, in the largest remnant of, of Lemuria, Australia. But um, what I want to go back to was the the uh, the destruction of the animal kingdom at the time uh, when the humans reincarnated and were uh, uh. evolving consciousness they um, there were still reptiles around and in fact Lavasi talks about how the giants of the time actually fought the reptiles they were fighting T-Rexes and Brontosauruses and God knows what apparently if you look at the height of those 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 creatures they would have been the height of human beings at that time and so the point I wanted to make, uh, this is some really classic kind of, there's one really classic quote of this quiet evocative when she's talking about the, the human beings fighting these monsters with their, with their sheer brute strength and weapons that they had at the time, very crude, of course. But the point I make throughout the book is that um, human beings, human physical forms and animal forms have shrunk in in parallel with one another since that time to modern day so we have the great komodo lizards for instance of, of indonesia today and the crocodiles and so forth um and we have the average human height of today but even um as far back as uh, uh Vasky says i was reading this today the third sub race of the fifth root race so we're talking 400 to 600,000 years ago human beings were still 15 feet generally in, in height. But of course, there have been other races like dwarf races as well, uh, but they were still 15 feet in height and they diminished from 15 feet to about 12 feet. And of course, many, many, there's been many accounts in the Americas and around the world of, of skeletons being found of that height. Um, and um, but essentially, we'll get back into that later, but essentially what I'm talking about here is that scientists today have allowed for the diminution of the, the physical forms of the reptiles and the reptile kingdom and so forth, but not humans, uh, which is which is illogical. It's not scientific in, in, in many ways. So, um, uh, and so <clears throat> coming back into the present, in, in many ways, there's been stories that you've probably heard of, of the of the suppression of true human history. And, and I believe that's come about through various reasons, through, through academics wanting to preserve their, their view of the world and getting their grants, uh, and maybe more nefarious, nefarious reasons. Um, the so-called, uh, you know, the Smithsonian Institute apparently uh, did away with thousands of skeletons that were discovered all around America. They were destroyed or hidden. Um, they were reinterred. A lot of people say, you know, where is the evidence of, of where are the skeletons for all the giants of Atlantis? <clears throat> and Blavatsky says, gives two main reasons, but there are more. One is that cremation was a universal procedure during that civilization. So bodies were burnt to complete ash. The other was 
when the remainder of the Atlantean giants or the majority of the Atlantean giants were, were drowned in the second flood of Atlantis, 850,000 years ago, that the action of the ocean <clears throat> um, dissolved the bones on the sea floor. So um, they, uh, so all these factors led to the to the lack of evidence. But of course, there are many stories in the USA and South America of expeditions that went out that found caves full of four foot skeletons with long red hair, like they have in South America. Uh, that found, in fact, one amazing story, uh, which I believe is true, was two fossilized skeletons on the on the um, uh, on the uh, in the rocks of the Colorado River. Is it the Colorado River that runs through the Grand Canyon? Correct. Is that the river that goes? Yeah. Um, I believe so, yeah. One of which was a female, 18 feet, the other one male, 21 feet, or something like that. Uh, there are loads and loads of, um, uh, of evidence, and that's why my next book is called Geography and Giants, because I'm looking at that subject as, at the same time as I'm looking at the shifting of continents and stuff. There's even, a, I believe, a speech or a, uh, of Abraham Lincoln talking about the giants and there's really? a, yes um and there is of course it's probably been erased from the history books by the <laughs> smithsonian institute um but there is yes i remember going deep into giants back in the day and there's this great lore about how he was introduced into one of the mounds and saw the red-headed giant in stasis and actually signed his name on the wall and uh, was very familiar with uh, the redheaded giants in these stasis chambers mm. in the, in the mm. um, you know, in the United States. Yes, because they ran his time was yeah. one of the dates when all those explorers went out, and they were, they were government uh, funded as well. I've also read accounts where Thomas Jefferson was very much aware of a lot of uh, past civilizations and root races including some of his ancestors where I believe a expedition went out on the European side to uh, mm. explore and try to find some of these, uh, you know, remnants in the new world. And these founding fathers, well, many of them were initiates, of course, Benjamin Franklin, Jefferson, all those guys. Yes. Um, amazing time for the formation of your nation, uh, which is being brought to its knees now and, and it's Pluto return. And, uh, um, which in many ways has to fall apart before it can, can build itself back up again. So we're living mm -hmm. in extraordinary times right now, extraordinary times, because the Tibetan does and, say and that the USA such a, is such a great effort. That the USA is, uh, as an Aquarian me. soul is meant to uh, lead humanity into the Aquarian age. So um, it's Dharma is being thwarted by all these forces that you were talking about before, the uh, the opening of the borders, the, the whole uh, the sexuality, uh, the undermining uh, of all parts of American society. When you look at those terrible videos of people, um, of, of the various towns of, of crackheads and, and uh, meth heads uh, in, in all American cities, uh, you see the terrible destruction that's that's occurred more in that nation than any other nation in the world. It does occur elsewhere, of course, but nothing like the scale that's happening in the USA. So um, it's such a critical period now. 
and it's being destroyed by by these um, these recalcitrant moon trainers, essentially, uh, who uh, their his ideology is about control and power, of course. <clears throat> so uh, this is something that, but the last few years of that attempted control has woken up thousands and thousands of people who are basically have have what we call reversed the wheel and have, have woken up and to the, to the fact of soul and uh, are preparing for the first initiation, which is an extraordinary um, acceleration of consciousness that's been occurring, in fact, since both of the wars last century, the both of the world wars last century. And um, and so mm-hmm. the, the, their plan has backfired, hasn't it, in some ways? Yeah. So, Philip, you uh, mentioned in your work that uh, Shambhala is now projecting great um, forces of energy directly through humanity rather than uh, using uh, the hierarchy as a conduit. And uh, you also mentioned that that has a calculated risk involved. Um, uh, When did that start happening? In the last couple of hundred years. there are some exact dates, but but roughly from the early 1800s, the energy has been gradually stepping up. And um, so prior to that, the hierarchy, which represents the second ray of love wisdom, Shambhala represents the first ray of will or power mm-hmm. as destructive mm-hmm. energy. The second ray is a building energy. Um, again, with, it ties in with initiation and the acceleration of human evolution that needs to be patched up from the moon chain mistakes and be at the level of Venus, <clears throat> they took a calculated risk, as you say, and decided not to be a shield or a filter between um, Shambhala and humanity, taking the risks at the point of least resistance in humanity is the lower chakras is, is related to you know, the yeah, ruthlessness, the misuse of power, all those kind of first ray glamours or, or negative aspects of the first ray. And of course, uh, we've seen that in, in the, the various dictators that have come forth. Um, some of them more benign, really, uh, and some more malign. He gives an a, a example of Ataturk, the Turkish dictator back in the 1920s, who he called a disciple of Shambhala. <clears throat> So um, they've taken, you know, the Shambhala energy is basically directing the energy of the planetary purpose and plan direct to humanity. And so it's going to cause friction with the existing status quo of, of frequencies that is much more gross than the finely refined frequencies of, of Shambhala. And even the approach of hierarchy who intend to, to uh, return and the reappearance of the Christ or the one who holds the office of the Christ in the next, um, maybe in our lifetimes, um, is also causing conflict because their highly refined frequencies, which has Shambhala force passing through it, is also causing conflict on the planet. Paradoxically, <clears throat> the Christ himself said, uh, when he returns again, he said, uh, I, not, I do not come to bring peace, but a, but a sword. And this sword is the symbol of the first ray of cutting through spiritual materialism and so forth. Um, and um, 
And so this is where we are right now. We've got this, and in fact, 2025 uh, is halfway between, is, well, I, I, I'll start again. There was a, a, a cycle of initiation, a 49-year cycle of, of initiation for the masters called the cycle of decision. The last one was in 2000 or 2001. And the next one will be in 49 years time, 2050. And 2025 is the halfway mark of that, that point. And we've had five Shambhala impacts already in history. I, I, I'm thinking that there might be a sixth Shambhala impact at this halfway point in 2025. And I think we're already feeling it, in fact. So um, the three Shambhala impacts happened approximately across the three root races, Lemuria, and the 333 at the 444 in the middle of Atlantis and the 555 at the end of World War II when the atom bomb was dropped. That was the culmination of that 200-year cycle from the 1800s that um, manifested in the Shambhala force that, um, that was one expression of that Shambhala force anyway. Since then, 1975 and 2000, there were two other minor Shambhala impacts. And so I'm predicting... Um, uh, and speculating, as are other students of the wisdom, that the next one could come in 2025. And um, I, I know we're running up on time here, and uh, any discussion on the seven rays is kind of impossible in a few moments, but is there any way to... Uh, uh, just understand the cliff notes as far as why astrology with a ray-based understanding, um, you know, how to differentiate that from, you know, just yeah. conventional astrology and how it might be of value uh, in understanding everything we're talking about. Yeah, let, let, let's do a, a quick overview of esoteric astrology. I mean, we could spend another session on this, of course, maybe another day. I, th I think but, uh, part two on just that would be exactly. great for sure. Sure. Oh, well, I'm up for that. That's great. Yeah. Um, essentially, esoteric astrology is the, the science of the soul. It uses different rulerships. It, it uses higher octave rulerships of the signs called esoteric rulers. <coughs> excuse me. Um, and um, uh, the the science of esoteric astrology is essentially the science of the seven rays. They're inextricably entwined, even though the seven rays can be studied separately as esoteric psychology, and there are two volumes of that in the Alice Bailey series. Um, and if you don't want to study astrology, then you can just study the rays, and that's great. But it is essentially inextricably entwined with esoteric astrology. You find that the planets rule rays, and they rule signs, and they rule chakras. So the seven rays, the seven chakras, the 12 signs, they're all inter, intermingled and um, all the complex energetic relationships between human beings, between all living creatures, between all kingdoms can be explained by the rays, the mineral kingdom, vegetable, animal, human, um, are all conditioned by ray energies that come from the so-called seven solar systems, which our solar system is part of. And I described that. I think you might have seen that in one of my videos or, or articles. So, and, um, um, for people that 
real quick for people that want to delve a little deeper, I'd highly recommend your series of books on the soul cycles in the seven rays. If, uh, can you see that? Okay. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. I just want to throw that out. So, uh, give the interruption, go ahead, Philip. That's okay. Um, yeah, excuse me. My voice is going, but, um, there are five volumes of that soul series, soul cycle series. Excuse me, I'm going to have to some more water here. Excuse me. I'm just about to talk myself hoarse. Excuse me. Um, where was I? Wrong way, swallow. Uh, but my throat is just about gone. So, um, where was I? Yeah. So it is, you know, you, you concentrate on the ascendant or rising sign mm-hmm. in esoteric astrology as the sole purpose. And you look at the esoteric and exoteric rulers of that sign, their placement by house and aspect and sign in the zodiac to determine uh, what is the how the soul purpose unfolds. So that's so when I do a reading, I have to blend the exoteric astrology with esoteric astrology to make it palatable for the individual to understand. And even then, I advise them to listen to the recording at least three times because it's a steep learning curve to really to get the whole thing, to get the to extract the most most you can from a reading. So uh uh, that's that's how I, I try and present it. But I have I do have one day workshops seminars on on uh, usually on the weekends. Um, so there's more people that can attend three one and a half hour sessions each day. First day on Esoteric Astrology, the second day on uh, on uh, hidden history of humanity. And I've just run one a, a few weeks ago, and I'll probably offer others in the future. Um, yeah, yeah so, I, was, uh, uh, I was on that webinar. Very good. Oh, yeah, we had a problem with a big tech problem on the Sunday. I'm really sorry about that. But um, I think I gave yeah. access to everyone. Well, for I watched the, uh, the, the video replay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Michael Robbins was, was a friend of mine. Good, um, and he did a brilliant job with those Tapestry of the Gods books, which you can download for free in PDF from mm-hmm. my site. And other websites. Oh, you can. Yeah, um, but uh, the books are available new and secondhand on Amazon as well, I think. Um, but they are brilliant books because he he really broke down in a very academic way all the possible combinations of the rays with his vast uh, knowledge that he had of the Bambi books and of the secret document. He's one of the the great scholars, and of course his conferences went for uh, thirty five years before he passed just recently uh, in uh, February 2022, right on the Aquarian full moon. But um, so there are sources there. There are sources in the Bailey books. There are other authors, of course, who have written about the rays. Um, I'm not the only one. But uh, with my esoteric astrology work and my in my newsletters, I've tried to apply practically the science of astrology and the rays to what's been going on in the world, whether it's a famous 
personality and history, or whether it's talking about the nations, which all have ray conditionings, of course. Um, you know, the, the second ray soul of the USA and of the UK, of Britain, the sixth ray personality of the USA, which I've talked about a lot. I've got many, many essays on that in the last 20 years. Um, the seventh ray soul of Russia or the fourth ray soul of uh, Germany. Um, and uh, we had a conference in a, Zoom, a four day Zoom conference in Aries this year, which was called European Reunification looking at um, one of the quotes of the Tibetan, in fact, uh, about how important Europe was uh, for, for um, uh, uh, disseminating the Asia's wisdom teachings, but also in, in terms of the current um, state of affairs in Europe. So Europe too, like the USA, is breaking down and breaking up uh, in some ways, but in, in order for it to reform again on a much more kosher basis than it is now. Uh, there is so much, so much corruption in Europe in the individual countries, let alone the EC and Brussels and places like that. Um, it all has to come apart and Pluto has been playing a big role in that, of course, going through Capricorn, breaking up all the old um, uh, structures. And it's going to be interesting to watch it going into Aquarius for the final time soon in the next year or two. Uh, where it will stay for about 21 years, I believe. So um, it will do some real renovation work with, it will be one of the major kind of um, uh, passages between the Piscean age and the Aquarian age, one of the major signposts of Pluto and Aquarius. Yeah. yeah. What I really appreciate about your work is you do uh, integrate it with current events as well as historical events so it lends a, a bit of practicality for folks that aren't as familiar with the, the more esoteric uh, parts of it and uh, i greatly look forward to your newsletters and i'd uh, highly encourage anybody to uh, go to philip's website um esoteric astrology and uh mike you'll astrologer. put all those up there in the show notes right? yeah. astrologer forgive me and, yeah, so uh, yeah, just just I just greatly uh, yeah, look forward to those. So, Philip, uh, as we mentioned that, uh, can you tell our audience uh, besides your website, any other places where they can find your work, or any any other parting thoughts that you might have? Thank you, uh, Bear. Yeah, I um, I have a Facebook page. Uh, for myself in astrology and also another one uh, for hidden history. I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook, as I was saying to Mike earlier on. But um, I, I consider it still a, a, a way of getting the information out there despite being algorithmized by, by uh, Facebook on certain posts that I make. Um, I'm also on Telegram and uh, I have a esoteric astrologer uh, 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 channel, Telegram channel, and a hidden history channel as well. Um, and of course, you can you can reach me on my uh, website uh, if you want to email me. My, my uh, contact email is there. <clears throat> and there's about 20 years of my writings on my website. You can go to a, a heading on the menu called Search by Subject. Um, and basically, every subject I've written about in every newsletter for the last 20 years is there. So you can find it grouped under different headings. Um, 
and uh, or we can just use the search bar above above there. But it's a it's a huge resource that's been built up now. And by the way, I've also taken a break from newsletter writing. I've been writing nonstop for fourteen years, uh, and I announced a break a, a couple of months ago during cancer. So I'm just sending out the occasional newsletter now. I've been very tempted to send it out more to comment on what's going on, but I really have to have a break, which helps me also to get back into writing the second book in the, in the Hidden History series. So I wrote the most recent one was on Israel a couple of weeks ago uh, for the, for the uh, Hamas attack. Uh, I, I, that's something that I've been very close to for a long time. Uh, with regard to the, the mysterious evolution of, of the Jewish people, for instance, um, which goes back way before the moon chain, it goes back to the first solar system, uh, according to the Tibetan teachings. But that's another story altogether, of course. It's, it's very esoteric, so it's not, for, not everyone's cup of tea. But um, the urgency of the situation now, I'll, I'll be making newsletters according to to what's unfolding right now and, and maybe bring out another one in the next few weeks, depending on what's going on in the world. So I'll maybe stick to the three or four newsletters a year for a while, or I may get back into a complete new monthly cycle, but shorter newsletters, not great big long 20 page books that, that people kind of have to plow through every month or don't have to, but it's, it's there for them to read if they want to. Um, I felt such an urgency in the last few years since the COVID crisis in early 2020 to explore that whole thing. So some of the newsletters took me three or four weeks to write, whereas they usually took me three or four days to write um, because I need to go through all that information and do it justice and sort out the wheat from the chaff to, to discern the truth, uh, to use my intuition to, uh, along with the concrete information to figure out what the hell was going on. And um, I'm glad I took the time to do it. And there's a, if anyone wants to go to my search by subject uh, uh, heading on my on my uh, website and scroll down to uh, healing, a, he a heading called healing, uh, at the end of that, there's a whole long section about this long on on everything to do with the uh, the vaccines, the the, uh, the attack on humanity the WEF, the WHO, every aspect of it. Um, and I've, I condensed it all into about <clears throat> the 23-part series, in fact. Uh, you know, the Corona Crisis, Volume 1, Volume 2, we're up to about 22. So I've just about finished all that cycle now. But I do point out that um, as, as um, the Corona um crisis went off off the headlines in came russia and ukraine perfect segue and now russia and ukraine as the ukrainians are, are, have lost the war essentially it's something announced in the newspapers of course uh we have another segue into into uh israel and so, isn't it interesting uh, that the connection between ukraine and israel with the yes. Khazarian mafia and all of that it's all connected. The Tibetan does talk about a, a, a triangle of evil uh, in the world. And this is a whole other subject, so I won't keep you too long. But he said that one point is with the Zionists in, in the USA. Another point is somewhere in Central Europe, which is speculated to be either Austria, Poland, or Ukraine. 
and the third point is in Palestine, which is no longer a holy mm. land. It says a dark cloud hangs over all those countries, or mainly that, that circle from, from Russia, Middle East, down to um, around the Mediterranean, Turkey, and so forth. So uh, what we're seeing, I think, is, a, is a, uh, an amplification of those points of evil right now, but it's bringing everything to a head. And we're seeing it right in front of our eyes with these, these ghastly kind of uh, massacres going on on both sides. Um, but that's a whole other more complicated, more nuanced story, as you both probably know. So I'm just sort of giving the broad brush. I would, uh, I would love to get you back if you're available and uh, unpack some of that. And then, of course, as far as the former Holy Land, uh, the Nazarene famously lamented about the future of that area there. Uh, whether you take that as literal or or otherwise, so um, mm. uh, this is this been absolutely uh, brilliant, Philip. Um, again, any any final thoughts? Um, uh, there's so many more areas I'd like to go into, but again, I'll probably have to wait till part two, uh, which sure. I look forward to. Yeah, any time, but um, I'm happy to to hang out with you guys and, and have these discussions. Um, uh, the one thing I would say, at first, there's so much fear and trepidation going on in the world, is that the that we have won. It's just going to. It's we're not going to see the the outcome for a few years. In 1942, the Tibetans said that the war had been won against the Nazis, but it took three years to um, to work itself out. <clears throat> I think a similar thing is happening right now, because I see so many people awake. So many people taking action, so many people creating groups. And this is the true Aquarian um, uh, theme, the people forming like-minded groups and standing up to the forces that are trying to control them. So I, I say to everyone, uh, you know, uh, stay hopeful and don't let the bastards grind you down. I think that's a quote from someone that I'm just uh, reiterating <laughs> there. Yeah. Uh I, I think uh, my father used to say that. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's such uh, an amazing time to be alive. Uh, I don't think any of us would miss this for anything. And, uh, you know, I've been involved with some groups that follow the teachings of the masters for, you know, many years now, my wife and myself. And they describe uh, the present time as World War III that is uh, drawn out into a longer, more benign event because of prior work and dispensations that have come from the masters uh, that uh, therefore avoided, you know, the, the, the you know, one um, final explosion kind of thing. Yeah. So I think we're just, uh, I would agree with what you're saying. We're kind of just living through this drawn out uh, energy until it comes to an end here. And, and I, we, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, we, we've already won and just don't give in to the fear. Yeah, and, you know, Foster Bailey, who was Alice Bailey's husband, he was part of one of DK's, you know, he, he was one of the major forces that got all of her teachings out. He, in one of his books, I can't remember which one, it was written about 1975, he made some commentary about how Alice Bailey was still disincarnate on the other side. Um, and... Um, 
was working in the Master Kutumi's ashram, but he said mm. that um, the hierarchy would not allow nuclear war to take place. Now, mm. I know we, we can't kind of relax and drop our guard because of that and be complacent, but I believe that is true. And I think the misfiring of certain missile silos over the last 10 years that people talk about is, is part of that as well. And, um, and of course, everyone is aware, even the main leaders in the world today, even though a lot of them are, uh, you know, uh, lack, lack uh, good discernment or judgment, they all know that if one, there's no such thing as a nuclear, uh, limited nuclear exchange. It's going to be all over if there's even yeah. one uh, exchange. So I think they're they're all pretty pragmatic about that. Um, I'd like to think that anyway. I think they're they're not that that crazy. And it also could have larger ramifications for the entire solar system. So um, they might have Absolutely. something to say about that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the whole solar system is looking at Earth at the moment. Uh, our tiny, unimportant planet, as DK describes it in one, in one uh, passage, but uh, in, at the same time, extremely important piece in the puzzle uh, because of the karma that we're working out here, which is quite unique. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the Tibetan also says that this planet is, is a sphere, uh, is unique amongst all the other planets in the solar system because none of them have the conditions of pain and suffering which are experienced on Earth. Which is an amazing statement, mm -hmm. really amazing statement. So, um, something to ponder on there. Well, I will say Absolutely. this has been a, a great conversation and a great way to end it there. And uh, one thing, when I always look at these timelines and the root races, uh, it's uh, a refreshing reminder that we are just a small drop in the bucket right now in the temporal exchange of time. But also, we, um, you know, when you, when you get into the into the perennial philosophy which is tied into all of this what are we talking about we're talking about karma and what we do matters because it's what uh, affects the future and we have lived many 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 lifetimes throughout this and um those fears of some sort of thing happening in the next 10 15 years uh when you look at the great the great scope of all this there's nothing to fear because it's a massive 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 scale uh, that we're involved with here and it's a great reminder right uh, perspective if you will um that uh it's all good so um thanks so much philip appreciate the time here and uh everybody Thank go you. check out go check out the links in the show notes below uh esotericastrologer.org i'll also leave the link to uh his article about uh reestablishing esoteric chronology and world history and also his great film uh, there that is available on his YouTube channel, The Hidden History of the World. Thank you, guys. Remember to give this a thumbs up. Share with your friends and family. Helps us to get out to others to discover our work. Remember to get outside. Get your feet in the dirt. Go plant something. Go for a hike. Go give a mm -hmm. tree a hug. Mother Nature is the best teacher. And yeah, Bear? You want to say something? Oh, I thought Bear had no, some fun. We're good. Uh, just thanks again, Philip. <laughs> you're welcome it's a pleasure to be here guys i look forward to our next meeting thank you guys love you all see you next time and uh, hopefully i won't have technical issues next time sure thanks for bearing with us today on the tech issues love you fam later guys